0: Chapter Two of the Flying In. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivoxorg Recording by Nicola K. The Flying In by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Two: The End of Olive Island. The great sea-dragon of the changing colors that wriggles round the world like a chameleon was pale green as it washed on Pebblewick, but strong blue where it broke on the Ionian Isles. One of the innumerable islets, hardly more than a flat white rock in the azure expanse, was celebrated as the Isle of Olives, not because it was rich in such vegetation, but because by some freak of soil or climate two or three little olives grew there, to an unparalleled height. Even in the full heat of the south it is very unusual for an olive tree to grow any taller than a small pear tree. But the three olives that stood up as signals on this sterile place might well be mistaken, except for the shape, for moderate-sized pines or larches of the north. It was also connected with some ancient Greek legend about Pallas, the patroness of the olive. For all that sea was alive with the first fairyland of Hellas, and from the platform of marble under the olive trees could be seen the grey outline of Ithaca. On the island and under the trees was a table set in the open air, and covered with papers and inkstands. At the table were sitting four men, two in uniform, and two in plain black clothes. Aides-de-camp, equerries, and such persons stood in a group in the background, and behind them a string of two or three silent battleships lay along the sea, for peace was being given to Europe. There had just come to an end the long agony of one of the many unsuccessful efforts to break the strength of Turkey and save the small Christian tribes, there had been many other such meetings in the later phases of the matter as one after another the small nations gave up the struggle or the greater nations came in to coerce them but the interested parties had now dwindled to these four for the powers of europe being entirely agreed on the necessity for peace on a turkish basis were content to leave the last negotiations to england and germany who could be trusted to enforce it there was a representative of the sultan of course and there was a representative of the only enemy of the sultan who had not hitherto come to terms for one tiny power had alone carried on the war month after month and with a tenacity and temporary success that was a new nine days marvel every morning an obscure and scarcely recognized prince calling himself the king of ithaca had filled the eastern mediterranean with exploits that were not unworthy of the audacious parallel that the name of his island suggested poets could not help asking if it were odysseus come again patriotic greeks even if they themselves had been forced to lay down their arms could not help feeling curious as to what greek race or name was boasted by the new and heroic royal house it was therefore with some amusement that the world at last discovered that the descendant of Ulysses was a cheeky Irish adventurer named Patrick Dalroy, who had once been in the English Navy, had gotten into a quarrel through his Fenian sympathies, and resigned his commission. Since then he had seen many adventures in many uniforms, and always got himself or someone else into hot water with an extraordinary mixture of cynicism and quixotry. In his fantastic little kingdom, of course, he had been his own general, his own admiral, his own foreign secretary, and his own ambassador. But he was always careful to follow the wishes of his people in the essentials of peace and war, and it was at their direction that he had come to lay down his sword at last. Besides his professional skill, he was chiefly famous for his enormous bodily strength and stature it is the custom in newspapers nowadays to say that mere barbaric muscular power is valueless in modern military actions but this view may be as much exaggerated as its opposite in such wars as these of the near east where whole populations are slightly armed and personal assault is common a leader who can defend his head often has a real advantage and it is not true, even in a general way, that strength is of no use. This was admitted by Lord Ivywood, the English minister, who was pointing out in detail to King Patrick the hopeless superiority of the light pattern of Turkish field-gun. And the King of Ithaca, remarking that he was quite convinced, said he would take it with him, and ran away with it under his arm it would be conceded by the greatest of the turkish warriors the terrifying oman pasha equally famous for his courage in war and his cruelty in peace but who carried on his brow a scar from patrick's sword taken after three hours mortal combat and taken without spite or shame be it said for the turk is always at his best in that game nor would the quality be doubted by mr hart a financial friend of the german minister whom patrick after asking him which of his front windows he would prefer to be thrown into, threw into his bedroom window on the first floor with so considerate an exactitude that he alighted on the bed, where he was in a position to receive any medical attention. But when all is said, one muscular Irish gentleman on an island cannot fight all Europe forever, and he came with a kind of gloomy good humor to offer the terms now dictated to him by his adopted country, He could not even knock all the diplomatists down, for which he possessed both the power and the inclination, for he realized with the juster part of his mind that they were only obeying orders, as he was. So he sat heavily and sleepily at the little table, in the green and white uniform of the navy of Ithaca, invented by himself. A big bull of a man, monstrously young for his size, with a bull neck and two blue bull's eyes for eyes, and red hair rising so steadily off his scalp that it looked as if his head had caught fire, as some said it had. The most dominant person present was the great Omen Pasha himself, with his strong face starved by the asceticism of war, his hair and moustache seeming rather blasted with lightning than blanched with age, a red fez on his head, and between the red fez and moustache, a scar at which the king of Ithaca did not look. His eyes had an awful lack of expression. Lord Ivywood, the English minister, was probably the handsomest man in England, save that he was almost colourless, both in hair and complexion. Against that blue marble sea he might almost have been one of its old marble statues, that are faultless in line, but show nothing but shades of grey or white." It seemed a mere matter of the lack of lighting, whether his hair looked dull silver or pale brown, and his splendid mask never changed in color or expression. He was one of the last of the old parliamentary orators, and yet he was probably a comparatively young man. He could make anything he had to mention blossom into verbal beauty, yet his face remained dead while his lips were alive he had little old-fashioned ways as out of old parliaments. For instance, he would always stand up, as in a senate, to speak to those three other men alone on a rock in the ocean. In all this, he perhaps appeared more personal in contrast to the man sitting next to him, who never spoke at all, but whose face seemed to speak for him. He was Dr. Gluck, the German minister, whose face had nothing German about it, NEITHER THE GERMAN VISION NOR THE GERMAN SLEEP. HIS FACE WAS AS VIVID AS A HIGHLY COLORED PHOTOGRAPH AND ALTERED LIKE A CINEMA, BUT HIS SCARLET LIPS NEVER MOVED IN SPEECH. HIS ALMOND EYES SEEMED TO SHINE WITH ALL THE SHIFTING FIRES OF THE OPAL. HIS SMALL CURLED BLACK MUSTACHE SEEMED SOMETIMES ALMOST TO HOIST ITSELF AFRESH, LIKE A LIVE BLACK SNAKE. BUT THERE CAME FROM HIM NO SOUND he put a paper in front of lord ivywood lord ivywood took a pair of eyeglasses to read it and looked ten years older by the act it was merely a statement of agenda of the few last things to be settled at this last conference the first item ran the ithacan ambassador asks that the girls taken to harems after the capture of pylos be restored to their families this cannot be granted lord ivywood rose the mere beauty of his voice startled every one who had not heard it before your excellencies and gentlemen he said a statement to whose policy i by no means assent but to whose historic status i could not conceivably aspire has familiarized you with a phrase about peace with honor but when we have to celebrate a peace between such historic soldiers as Omen pasha and his majesty the king of ithaca i think we may say that it is peace with glory he paused for half an instant yet even the silence of sea and rock seemed full of multitudinous applause so perfectly had the words been spoken I think there is but one thought among us, whatever our many just objections through these long and harassing months of negotiations, I think there is but one thought now, that the peace may be as full as the war, that the peace may be as fearless as the war. Once more he paused an instant, and felt a phantom clapping, as it were, not from the hands, but the heads of the men. He went on if we are to leave off fighting we may surely leave off haggling a statute of limitations or if you will an amnesty is surely proper when so sublime a peace seals so sublime a struggle and if there be anything in which an old diplomatist may advise you i would most strongly say this that there should be no new disturbance of whatever amicable or domestic ties have been formed during this disturbed time I will admit i am sufficiently old-fashioned to think any interference with the interior life of the family a precedent of no little peril nor will i be so illiberal as not to extend to the ancient customs of islam what i would extend to the ancient customs of christianity a suggestion has been brought before us that we should enter into a renewed war of recrimination as to whether certain women have left their homes with or without their own consent i can conceive no controversy more perilous to begin or more impossible to conclude I WILL VENTURE TO SAY THAT I EXPRESS ALL YOUR THOUGHTS WHEN I SAY THAT WHATEVER WRONGS MAY HAVE BEEN wrought, ON EITHER SIDE, THE HOMES, THE MARRIAGES, THE FAMILY ARRANGEMENTS OF THIS GREAT OTTOMAN EMPIRE SHALL REMAIN AS THEY ARE TODAY. NO ONE MOVED EXCEPT PATRICK DELROY, WHO PUT HIS HAND ON HIS SWORD-HILT FOR A MOMENT AND LOOKED AT THEM ALL WITH BURSTING EYES. THEN HIS HAND FELL, AND HE LAUGHED OUT LOUD AND SUDDEN. Lord Ivywood took no notice, but picked up the agenda paper again, and again fitted on the glasses that made him look older. He read the second item, needless to say, not aloud. The German minister, with the far from German face, had written this note for him. Both Coote and the Bemsteins insist there must be Chinese for the marble. Greeks cannot be trusted in the quarries just now. But while, continued Lord Ivywood, WE DESIRE THESE FUNDAMENTAL INSTITUTIONS, SUCH AS THE MOSLEM FAMILY, TO REMAIN AS THEY ARE EVEN AT THIS MOMENT. WE DO NOT assent TO SOCIAL STAGNATION, NOR DO WE SAY FOR ONE MOMENT THAT THE GREAT TRADITION OF ISLAM IS CAPABLE ALONE OF SUSTAINING THE NECESSITIES OF THE NEAR EAST. BUT I WOULD SERIOUSLY ASK, YOUR EXCELLENCIES, WHY SHOULD WE BE SO VAIN AS TO SUPPOSE THAT THE ONLY CURE FOR THE NEAR EAST IS OF NECESSITY THE NEAR WEST? If new ideas are needed, if new blood is needed, would it not be more natural to appeal to those most living, those most laborious civilizations which form the vast reserve of the Orient? Asia in Europe, if my friend Oman Pasha will allow me the criticism, has hitherto been Asia in arms. May we not yet see Asia in Europe and yet Asia in peace? These at least are the reasons which lead me to consent to a scheme of colonization patrick dalroy sprang erect pulling himself out of his seat by clutching at an olive branch above his head he steadied himself by putting one hand on the trunk of the tree and simply stared at them all there fell on him the huge helplessness of mere physical power he could throw them into the sea but what good would that do more men on the wrong side would be accredited to the diplomatic campaign and the only man on the right side would be discredited for anything. He shook the branching olive tree above him in his fury. But he did not for one moment disturb Lord Ivywood, who had just read the third item on his private agenda. Pasha insists on the destruction of the vineyards and was by this time engaged in a peroration which afterwards became famous and may be found in many rhetorical text-books and primers he was well into the middle of it before delroy's rage and wonder allowed him to follow the words do we indeed own nothing the diplomatist was saying to that gesture of high refusal in which so many centuries ago the great arabian mystic put the wine-cup from his lips do we owe nothing to the long vigil of a valiant race the long fast by which they have testified against the venomous beauty of the vine ours is an age when men come more and more to see that the creeds hold treasures for each other that each religion has a secret for its neighbor that faith unto faith uttereth speech and church unto church showeth knowledge If it be true, and I claim again the indulgence of Oman Pasha, when I say I think it is true, that we of the West have brought some light to Islam in the matter of the preciousness of peace and of civil order, may we not say that Islam in answer shall give us peace in a thousand homes, and encourage us to cut down that curse that has done so much to thwart and madden the virtues of Western Christendom already in my own country the orgies that made horrible the knights of the noblest families are no more already the legislature takes more and more sweeping action to deliver the populace from the bondage of the all-destroying drug surely the prophet of mecca is reaping his harvest the cession of the disputed vineyards to the greatest of his champions is of all acts the most appropriate to this day To this happy day that may yet deliver the east from the curse of war and the west from the curse of wine. The gallant prince who meets us here at last, to offer an olive branch even more glorious than his sword, may well have our sympathy if he himself views the session with some sentimental regret. But I have little doubt that he also will live to rejoice in it at last. And I would remind you that it is not the vine alone that has been the sign of the glory of the south. There is another sacred tree, unstained by loose and violent memories, guiltless of the blood of Pentbius, or of Orpheus, and the broken lyre. We shall pass from this place in a little while, as all things pass and perish. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire, and all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. But so long as sun can shine and soil can nourish, happier men and women after us shall look on this lovely islet, and it shall tell its own story. For they shall see these three holy olive trees, lifted in everlasting benediction, over the humble spot out of which came the peace of the world. The other two men were staring at Patrick Dalroy. His hand had tightened on the tree, and a giant billow of effort went over his broad breast. A small stone jerked itself out of the ground at the foot of the tree as if it were a grasshopper jumping, and then the coiled roots of the olive tree rose very slowly out of the earth like the limbs of a dragon lifting itself from sleep. "'I offer an olive branch,' said the king of Ithaca, totteringly leaning the loose tree, so that its vast shadow, much larger than itself, fell across the whole council. "'An olive branch,' he gasped, "'more glorious than my sword, also heavier.' Then he made another effort and tossed it into the sea below the german who was no german had put up his arm in apprehension when the shadow fell across him now he got up and edged away from the table seeing that the wild irishman was tearing up the second tree this one came out more easily and before he flung it after the first he stood with it a moment looking like a man juggling with a tower lord ivywood showed more firmness but he rose in tremendous remonstrance. Only the Turkish Pasha still sat with blank eyes, immovable. Delroy rent out the last tree and hurled it, leaving the island bare. There, said Delroy, when the third and last olive had splashed in the tide, now I will go. I have seen something today that is worse than death, and the name of it is peace. Oman Pasha rose and held out his hand. You are right, he said in French, and I hope we meet again in the only life that is a good life. Where are you going now? I am going, said Dalroy dreamily, to the old ship. Do you mean, asked the Turk, that you are going back to the warships of the English king? No, answered the other, I am going back to the old ship that is behind the apple trees by Pebblewick, where the Yule flows among the trees. I fear I shall never see you there. After an instant's hesitation, he wrung the red hand of the great tyrant, and walked to his boat without a glance at the diplomatists. End of chapter 2. Recording by Nicola K.